This teaching comes to you from the team at Anchor Church Sydney. We hope you're blessed by it. For more teachings, resources or info, check out our website www.anchorchurch.com.au Hey, uh, my name's Arnaldo. I'm the lead pastor here at Anchor Southwest. And I want to give a big shout out to our Southwest family as well as our city family. Um, I know this time has been a bit crazy, a little chaotic, a bit unknown, um, and it's great to gather as uh, a family of churches together under the word of God. Um, and it's a pleasure, really, uh, for me to be able to open up the word um, this week uh, and share what the Lord has been putting in uh, on my heart. And our hope um, for those listening in, also, I want to say a big shout out for those who are joining us, friends, family, uh, probably maybe even enemies, um, for joining us online. Our hope is that you would find home in Jesus. Um, now, as an expression of that, we hope that you would join us in what God is doing here in this place, whether at Southwest or at City. And so we're going to be beginning a new series today in the book of Exodus. We're going to be spending the next 14 weeks exploring this book uh, that if it were turned into a Netflix special, let me tell you, uh, it wouldn't be on your kid's account. It's an epic story of redemption and murder and doubt and disobedience and wrath and grace. But ultimately, Exodus is a story of a God who relentlessly pursues his people. It's a story about salvation and more. It's a story about God's character and more. It's a story about rebellion and more. It's a story about cosmic rulers and powers and more. It's a story about oppression and slavery. It's a story about God's greatest acts of deliverance in the Old Testament and more. It's the central story. It's the central story that shapes all other stories moving forward. You know, for the Christian uh, the climax of our life, of our story, is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the organizing principle of our lives. Uh, similarly, uh, for the ancient Israelite and for, and for uh, uh, modern uh, um, uh, Jews, this is the organizing principle of their story. The exodus, when God rescues his people from the throes of Egypt. It's the story that interprets all other stories. I can't stress just how central the book of Exodus is for understanding not only the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, but also the new. And so we're going to slow down, take 14 weeks to preach through this book as a team, as well as, as explore what this looks like in our gospel communities. And we have, I have some hopes. We have some hopes for this, uh, for this series. We, we want people to walk away with something cumulatively as we walk through uh, this text over 14 weeks. What do I want to happen in you and in this community as we journey through Exodus? Uh, first is this. I want you to know Really know, really understand, know the story of God's unfolding plan in Scripture. I want us to really know the Bible. I want us to know the flow of the entire story of the Bible. 
Knowing the whole, knowing the thrust, knowing the, the themes will help us make sense of its parts. I want us to get comfortable with handling the word of God, for it not to be foreign. I want you to have confidence in your ability to know the story of God's unfolding plan in Scripture. But this serves a purpose. And it's second that I want you to experience God's relentless desire to be with his people. You know, one of the greatest misconceptions that I have encountered over and over is the idea that the Old Testament is about earning salvation or earning a place with God, while the New Testament is about receiving salvation through grace. And we need to put this to bed. The idea that we have this old, grumpy, temperamental God in the Old Testament and this sweet, never heard a fly Jesus in the New is an old uh, heresy that has gone back to as far as the second and third centuries in the history of the church. And unfortunately, it's still alive and well in many pockets. But as we progress through the story of Exodus, we'll see that God has always been a God of grace. And grace, remember, we learned in our study uh, in Ephesians a little while ago, is a gift. Grace is a gift that binds the giver to the person receiving the gift. But we'll get into all of that as we explore the book. God has always wanted to dwell with his people by grace. From the very first pages of scripture to the very last, God is a God that desires presence, time, and proximity. And even in the face of a deeply broken and traumatized and wayward people, we will experience a God who will do just about anything to come near. I want you to experience God's relentless, relentless desire to be with his people. And third and finally, my desire for you is that you would participate in the mission of God wholeheartedly. That you wouldn't just learn about God's desire to rescue a people and make a new humanity, but that you would partner with him in the cosmic project of renewal. You know, God's mission is vast, and it includes the renewal of all things, beginning with you. And so we'll learn that God's salvation is not simply a spiritual salvation, but one that encompasses every area of our lives. It's not just our souls that need saving and transformation alone, but our minds, our bodies, our imaginations, our societies, our practices, our politics, the way that we do commerce, the way that we do all of life is on the chopping block of renewal. And we'll see that our God is a God that opposes oppression and sides with the downtrodden, those with the boots of their oppressors firmly on their necks. And God's mission is to cover the face of the earth with his glory. And he calls us to be the agents of that very mission. So as we travel through this text, there may be a lot of strange material that you never have heard of or old stories that you were told when you were a kid. But with fresh eyes of faith, my hope is that in these next few months uh, with us, we'll, we'll prove uh, to sow some serious seeds of transformation in your heart, your mind, your imagination, and lives. But before we get into the text, I want to give us some context. I want to give us some, some handles about what story we're entering. Uh, because this 
uh, is not, uh, this doesn't just drop out of heaven. Uh, this, this is a part of a larger unfolding story. And so I want to take you through very quick, quickly what the story so far has been. We find here uh, in the book of Genesis, Genesis 1 to 11, a story of creation and sin and chaos, the flood, the Tower of Babel, amongst other things. And then in Genesis 12 to 50, we find uh, God entering into a relationship and making promises and a covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And, and Joseph is uh, the one who was sold into slavery and ends up in Egypt. And it's at this point that we enter into the story of Exodus. And so now that we have just some handles on our before our journey, uh, I want to provide um, uh, some some context in in the the book of Exodus uh, before we get started. So this is the structure of Exodus. So the book of Exodus can be uh, kind of cut up, split up into three parts. Uh, the first one is Exodus one to fifteen, uh, and that talks about redemption, God redeeming His people. And the next part, Exodus sixteen to twenty four, speaks on covenant. This this contract, as it were, contract doesn't quite capture it, uh, uh, but this 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 covenant between God and His people. And then it ends with this theme of presence of God making His home with His people. And so with that said, before we jump into the text, I want, I want to pray for us. We, we need prayer. Um, you need prayer to listen. I need prayer to preach. Uh, so join me as we pray together. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. We thank you that we are able to be here. Uh, we thank you that we, even in as we join together from our homes or um, or wherever we find ourselves during this time, uh, we just ask that you would be uh, with us, um, with us with comfort, with us with conviction. Uh, meet us however we, we need, Lord. Um, I pray that you would help me to forget the things that are not going to be helpful and pray that you will help me to remember the things that will be helpful. And for those, excuse me, those who are joining us and are uh, maybe don't consider themselves followers of Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would work and that you would save today. We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Now, I don't know what your experience with, uh, with hospitals has been, uh, but for a couple of years, it felt like a bit of a second home to our family. We went through a pretty rough season in the years 2014, 2015, 2016. I mean, name a virus, and it felt like one of us at some point had it from influenza to swine flu, to meningitis. Uh, it, was, it was a wild few years for us. And if we, um, you know, if we had time, I can, I can talk to you about the time when I had meningitis and I was speaking Spanish to the Ambos and didn't really know where I was. Uh, but it was 2016 uh, that really brought us to some of the lowest points of our lives as a family together. I mean, it was, it was brutal. Kath had gotten bitten uh, by a spider. And uh, to this day, we're not really sure what kind of spider. Probably uh, we think it's a white-tailed spider. Uh, but this resulted in her breaking out in sores from head to toe. And I'm, I mean, straight up, I'm not telling you anything that she uh, wouldn't be comfortable with me telling. Uh, but it was straight out of the book of Job. I mean, uh, open sores from head to toe. 
we went all over Sydney uh, to a number of doctors and specialists to try to decipher what this was. Um, and it was absolutely debilitating. And then about a month later, uh, Catherine gets into a car accident, uh, nearly riding off our Camry. And then what felt like the final straw that broke the already broken camel's back, Catherine had a pretty nasty accident that resulted in a displaced navicular fracture alongside a Liz Frank injury, which causes uh, to this day, uh, years later, a severe chronic pain. And those following days, weeks, months, and even years were incredibly, incredibly difficult to deal with. I mean, emotionally and physically and spiritually, we were at an absolute end of ourselves. And there were moments, you know, real excruciatingly painful moments where we felt completely and utterly abandoned by God. We, we, could never, we could never see ourselves not believing in God, but something far more insidious was happening. Uh, we began to not believe that God was good. He was absent. We were infuriated and we were empty. And yet, as we gave him our pain and our new friend, anxiety, the night began to break and light began to shine through. And where we are today isn't pain-free, it isn't anxiety-free, it isn't hospital-free, but what God has done in our suffering could not be seen or detected while we were in the furnace of our suffering. You know, it's only since our eyes have been lifted up to trust in his grace and goodness toward us to shape us into who he is making us to be in the heat of our suffering that we've begun to understand part of what he was working in us. We don't claim to get it. Um, it still hurts, uh, but we begin to understand part of what he is working in us. And we're not saying that there isn't even a greater suffering lying ahead of us, but we do know uh, that in that moment, in those moments of darkness and depression and suicidal ideation or raging anxiety that crushes your chest and was crushing ours, God was at work. And it's because of those experiences that now we can offer our own lives as wounded healers to others. Because this is what we learned along the way, and this is what I feel this text is going to be teaching us today, that even when God seems absent, he is working to rescue. That even when God seems absent, he is working to rescue. And this is what I pray that the Holy Spirit will bring home to our own hearts. And as we explore this story uh, the first couple chapters of Exodus today. Uh, now, the book of Exodus is, is mostly narrative. There's, there's some law in there. There's a couple poems, uh, some songs, but it's mostly narrative. It's mostly story. And so we won't be going through um, every chapter line by line in the same way that we would go through something like Paul's letters and such. Uh, so I want to break down each section that has been read earlier, but I want to capture some reflections and really just pitch our tent in Exodus 2, 23 to 25. So uh, I want to say let's, let's get after it. Now, as we mentioned earlier, the book of Exodus is a direct continuation to Genesis. And in fact, uh, the Hebrew 
Uh, in Hebrew, the book begins with and, right? The, the word and, uh, but that's bad grammar, and so that's not reflected in our modern translations. But nevertheless, nevertheless, that and, it signals something so important that what is coming up next must be understood in the context of the whole. So up until uh, verse 7, we have God's promises to Abraham seemingly being fulfilled. What we see here, let me read this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons and Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all of his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And so up until verse 7, we have God's promises to Abraham seemingly being fulfilled. The land was full of them. And not only the promises to Abraham, but the mandate given to Adam and Eve I mean, look at the language here, right? Fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and they grew exceedingly strong. That's language that we find uh, in the very early chapters of Genesis and in the promises given to Abraham. And do you see what the narrator is setting up, what the narrator is doing? They're, they're taking these themes from Genesis 1 and 2, the promises given to Abraham and saying, it's happening. It's happening. They were increasing in the land. There was abundance after the chaos of Genesis uh, 3 to 11 and so forth. It's finally happening. But this takes a sharp, sharp and steep turn as we look at the next few verses. The king of Egypt is dead. And there's a new ruler in town. And this new ruler doesn't know Joseph. And this makes, this makes sense if we understand the political turmoil of the time where Egypt underwent a change of dynasties. Now, I don't want to bore you with all the, all the minute historical details, but let me just say this. Suffice it to say that it's most likely that Joseph landed in Egypt when a dynasty called the Hyksos were ruling. Hyksos. And uh, who were of similar origin to the Israelites. They were Semitic in origin. But in the late 16th century BC, a new king came to power from a different origin and expelled the Hyksos from the land. And this new ruling family saw this multiplication of the Hebrews in the land and they were afraid that they would join their enemies. We see that in verse 10. And so this new king, in order to mitigate the possibility that they may turn on them, he oppresses the people of Israel and makes them to work as slaves. This new king, this pharaoh, whose name we don't know from the scriptures, attempts to stamp out this overpopulating group by instituting two policies to effectively ethnically cleanse the land in about two to three generations. If he was successful in about two to three generations, the Hebrews in the land of Egypt would be no more. First, in verses 11 to 14, he attempts to break them with heavy labor. Verse 11 says, 
this. Verse 11a says, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. And then we jump to verse 13 where it says, So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. Listen to that language. In mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they what? They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. And all this, so he would slow down their rate of reproduction. And that's what he was trying to do, this Pharaoh. Because, hey, you know, if you're being worked to the bone, surely there's no way mommy and daddy will have the energy to birds, bees, read Song of Solomon. Uh, kids, if you're watching here today, you can ask your parents about that. But uh, they were, he was trying to stop the rate of multiplication, the, the rate of reproduction. But verse 12 says this, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. So Pharaoh's first policy was to slow them down by ruthlessly working them to the bone. And notice the the repetition of language there, ruthless, work, slaves. And seeing that that didn't slow them down, Pharaoh adds infanticide to oppression to see if that will work, as we heard when Courtney read the text earlier. In verses 15 to 22, the king demands that the Hebrew midwives kill every male child by by throwing them into the Nile. But there are two lowly midwives who trick the king and don't go along with this psychotic plan to kill newborns in order to assuage his anxieties and shore up his political power. That, to our knowledge, was not in jeopardy anyway. We hear no kind of uprisings or plans of uprisings that would lead this pharaoh to institute such a brutal and barbaric policy. But suspicion and fear led to his attempts to rid the land of these foreigners, these others. And at the end of chapter one, we're left wondering, how is this going to turn out? How quickly They move, how quickly these people move from being fruitful and multiplying, fulfilling their creation mandate, the promises to Abraham, to not even knowing if they're going to be able to get past chapter one. Oppression and slavery, subversion, infanticide. But through the civil disobedience of a few lowly women, a savior is born. And we enter into this well-known story in Uh, chapter 2 of Exodus, where a child is born and they refuse to kill him because they feared God over those who were in political party. We know the story. A child is born. He's put in a reed basket, and uh, which is dipped in in this thing called pitch and and bitumen to sort of waterproof it. Uh, And in fact, this is actually the same stuff uh, that Noah used on the ark and covered it in, in pitch and bitumen Uh, back in Exodus, uh, rather, back in the book of Genesis. Uh, See, the narrator, what he's doing uh, is setting up for us an act of salvation. And as we know, this child is scooped up from the Nile and raised in the very household of the man who would have had him killed. Now, we really don't 
give God the credit he is due when it comes to just how incredibly ironic and subversive he is. That the instrument that was supposed to be death of this child, the waters will ultimately prove to be the child's salvation. And wrapped up in this child's deliverance, in this child's salvation, is the redemption of a whole nation. And we move along. And if this were a play, at this point, at the end of uh, 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 chapter 2, verse 10, uh, the curtain would come down, the lights would come up, and we would be sent on an intermission. And whatever baby uh, uh, was cast to play uh, baby Moses would be dismissed because the next time we encounter Moses, this boy is all grown up. And this is the beauty and the detriment of DreamWorks Studios. Uh, the other night, uh, we were reading Exodus 1 and 2 as a family, and we decided to put on the Prince of Egypt. And uh, listen, no shade to DreamWorks or the Prince of Egypt, uh, but I had to stop myself from running the movie uh, several times, every few minutes, to kind of point out uh, that that part didn't happen that exact way, or you know, they're, they're filling this in a bit with some creative license here. Uh, it didn't happen that way either. At some point, I had to just let it ride out and, and pray uh, for the kids that they wouldn't be led astray, right? But seriously, they 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 did a great job at adapting uh, the first few chapters of Exodus. But there's just a lot we don't know. Uh, what do we, what we do know is that when we turn from Exodus chapter 1 to Exodus chapter 2, Moses is all grown up. The, the end of Exodus uh, 2.10 rather to Exodus 2.11, Moses is all grown up. And not only that, but he's also grown something of a social consciousness. Uh, when verse 11 speaks about Moses going out to his people to look on their burdens, it wasn't that he was just uh, you know, on a camel on the way to a friend's house and saw people in the background. No, he went to inquire. He went to investigate. He went to look into the state of the plight of his people. And so somewhere along the line, somewhere between verses 10 and 11, where he was living it up in the palace, he learned that he was adopted. Uh, and whether he knew the entire story or not is lost to us. What is not lost is the way that Moses was evolving into the savior of, uh, of these people uh, that these people would need. So Moses, somehow, that we don't know, somehow wakes up to his own ethnic identity. And what does he do with that? Well, he, he sees a taskmaster go to work on one of the Hebrew slaves, and Moses turns John Wick real quick and buries the Egyptian in hopes of not being found out. But he realizes that as he tries to break up a fight, not between an Egyptian and a Hebrew, uh, but between two Hebrew slaves, two Hebrew brothers, he realizes that the secret is out and there is a price on his head. And he runs. He runs to a place called Midian. Moses, the murderer now. Moses, the hunted. Moses, the exile. Moses, the refugee. Moses, the now wanderer. He is driven out in the wilderness, away from his people, away from his place of origin, away from everything that he knows. But Moses isn't just those things. He also has 
the seeds of a deliverer, the seeds of a savior. And he delivers some young men from some shepherds while he's out in the wilderness who were trying to take advantage of these women at a well. And he ends up burying one of them, right? Uh, uh, wells back then, I guess, were the tinder, the tinder of the Bronze Age uh, because he saves these women. He, he, he's asked to stay there by their father, Ruel, uh, which later on we know as uh, Jethro, later on in the book of Exodus. And Moses, verse 21, tells us of chapter 2, was content to dwell with the man and Zipporah becomes his wife. And when they have kids, he names him Gershom because he's a wanderer. And this is where the narrator ends the close-up shot of what's happening in Moses' life and pans out for us. But before we get there, before we get to the end of chapter 2, I want you to get a sense of who who hasn't at all been mentioned up until this point. Uh, the last time we hear of God, uh, back when He blesses the mid is black, back when He blesses the midwives for their d- civil disobedience, and so now we're probably 30, 40 years after the fact, and nothing. Silence. Moses is driven out when he's about forty years old, and it's been about that long since we've heard about God. And and the question uh, that must be. Uh, on Moses' mind, definitely on the mind of those who are being oppressed by the Egyptians, is where is God? Where is God? It's a good question to ask. This is the tension that Catherine and I felt acutely during those times of, of testing, those times of refining Absence. Where is God? And we pick up the story here in chapter 2, verse 23, where the narrative begins like this. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry, uh, their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. So, so Pharaoh dies, and this price that was on Moses' head for killing an Egyptian, the reason why he had to flee to Midian, probably died with him. And at this point, Moses now is about 80 years old. And while Moses himself was absent from his people's plight, God wasn't. The narrator pans out and gives us a peek behind the curtains to show us exactly what has been going on. And the reality is that even when God seemed absent throughout this entire story, he was working to rescue That even when God seems absent, he is working to rescue. Moses is absent, but God heard their groaning. 
And let's not spiritualize this. It doesn't say that they began to pray to God, simply that in their pain, in their slavery, in their oppression, they groaned. Their bodies groaned. Their backs ached. Their hands hurt. Their feet were sore. Their relationships suffered. Their mental health deteriorated. Their hope dwindled. But where was God? What happened to these ancient promises? But God heard their groaning. God listened. And not only did God hear, but God remembers. God remembered his covenant with Abraham. And let me just say, when Scripture speaks of God remembering, it's not, uh, it's not uh, you know, the, the, the antonym to, to, when, uh, to the way we humans forget. No, this is a way of saying God is about to act. So God hears their groans. God remembers his covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants. But he also sees. Now, this may be one of the most just potent needs, the the most visceral needs we have as humans, the desire to be seen, to be seen and not judged, to be seen fully the way Adam saw Eve, the way Eve saw Adam naked and unashamed, nothing to hide, nothing to fear. This wasn't just a a physical nakedness that Adam and Eve had. Uh, uh, That's something that our culture may not have any problem with. No, this was a a spiritual nakedness, an emotional nakedness, a a psychological nakedness. We crave to be seen. We crave to be known. We crave to be loved. Those are good things that God has planted in us. And even when we go about it in all the wrong ways, that's a good desire. And God sees Israel. One of the things that people need when they are in the furnace of suffering is to be seen. Simply to be seen. To have a watchful gaze. Not to be given advice necessarily. Not to be told that everything's going to be all right. But honest and generous and patient and gracious gaze. So God hears their groans. He remembers his covenant. He sees them. And this text ends a little oddly with saying, God knows. Knows what? God knows exactly what? And all throughout the the first couple of sections in this book of Exodus, there's an intense battle between God and Pharaoh, the powers and principalities that animate Pharaoh. And here the narrator is finishing off this section by beginning that uh, juxtaposition, as it were, that the God of the Hebrews versus the God King Pharaoh of the Egyptians. Whereas Pharaoh began this story not knowing who Joseph was, God knows And as we unpack the rest of this book over the coming months, we're in for a wild ride. We'll see this God who sides with the oppressed, who goes to work as he redeems them in order to make them the conduit of his blessings to the world. You need to hear that, that God sides with the oppressed and he works in them and with them and makes them the conduit of his blessing to the world. 
You see, what these chapters do is that they show us that even when God seems absent, he is working to rescue. And we'll also learn as we go along the way, one of the things that the writer of Exodus is desperate to communicate, and it's this, that God is consistent. That's that's next week. Uh, But the, the, the way that he dealt with Israel is the same way he will deal with the coming generations and those that come after. And so this is what you right now, sitting in your living room, on your sofa, or in your bed, or breaking the law by browsing woolies, this is what you need to know. That God hears your groans. In your suffering and in your distress, God hears your groans. We often think that we need to fill our groaning with words so that God can act. But even when he seems absent from your pain, he is working to rescue. Now, I know some of you may be watching this from a hospital bed. Others in isolation, others going through separation or divorce. Disappointment is rampant, hopelessness even. The anxiety has been crippling and depression has whispered in your ear, is it even worth living? What is stopping me from taking those pills or picking up that razor? And in an age where we feel we need to make sense of the senselessness of our thoughts or our feelings, and we feel like we are drowning in them, we believe the lie that God is not near. But hear this. Hear God's word here. For we know, Paul says in the book of Romans, we know that while the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groaning isn't alien to us. But because we have the first fruits of the Spirit, because we know this the world that we live in and the lives so often that we lead are are not in conjunction, do not go with the grain of the universe. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. We groan too. But not only that, listen to Paul's words a couple of verses later. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness for we do not know what we pray, what uh, we we do not know what to pray for as we ought but the spirit himself intercedes for us with what not with not with words but with groanings god groans with us and god groans for us groanings that are too Deep for words. Even today, 2,000 years after Paul wrote these letters, and nearly 4,000 years since the book of Exodus took place, this is still true. And the Lord requires only that we groan in our pain and allow those groans to rise to him like incense. You need to know that in your suffering, And in your distress, God hears your groans.
Not only that, but God remembers his covenant. And that when we forget the ways, when we forget our covenant with God, when we forget the ways that we have pledged allegiance to him, and when we fail, he doesn't. He doesn't forget. He remembers the covenant, not just with Abraham, but the covenant he made in his own blood that God in Christ was crucified for our sins. And this is a covenant, this is a pact that God will not renege on. He will not leave us. This is an eternal covenant drawn up on the papyrus of our hearts with the blood of his son. That even if we could forget, he never will. I love the way the prophet Isaiah paints this when he says this. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. He will not forget the covenant that he has made, that we are incorporated into in the person and work of Jesus. We need to know that God remembers us. But also we remember that God sees us. We need to know and understand that in our suffering, in our disillusionment, in our deconstruction, God sees us. He's not only uh, a God of the Exodus back here, thousands of years ago, but right now where you are sitting, where you are standing, where you are washing dishes and listening to this, where you are somewhere playing with your kids and this is just in the background, you need to know this, God sees you. When we ache to be seen, God sees us. When our parents left us with gaping holes in our development because they didn't give us the gaze that we needed, the attention that we needed maybe to flourish, the, the eye contact that we needed to ensure that we were wanted. When that gnawing ache tears or rears its ugly head and we're tempted to scratch that itch in our own power, we remember that God sees us. And so, uh, I want to take a moment right now and let's just pause together for just a moment wherever you are with, with whomever you are with and let yourself be seen. I invite you to, to uh, maybe close your eyes for just a moment and know this. God sees you. You don't have to try to be seen. You don't have to try to bear yourself to him. He knows you. He sees you. He is closer to you than you are to yourself. Do you sense his gaze? What do we feel? What do we think when we think about God looking at us? A lot of us feel he has disappointment in his eyes. I feel that. I know what that feels like. 
A lot of us feel that he has anger in his eyes toward us. I felt that too. I know what that feels like. But what you need to know, what you need to believe by faith is that his gaze is gentle and his gaze is sweet. His gaze, even in our brokenness and our sin, is one that seeks our restoration gently. He is gentle and lowly of heart, and the scriptures promise us that a bruised reed he will not break. And I pray that you would wake up to this loving gaze. And finally, God knows you, knows you better than you could ever know yourself. You may be here and you may have never given your life to Jesus because you feel too unworthy, too dirty, or, or too uh, uh, dull, or too whatever you think disqualifies you to follow Jesus. Maybe, maybe you feel you need to be of a certain sexual orientation to follow Jesus faithfully. Maybe you've been told that you are not good enough. Maybe you've been told that you are quote unquote damaged goods. Maybe when you think about God seeing you, really, really seeing you, it's as frightening to you as all, you know, if you could remember the way Frodo was frightened when the all-seeing eye of Sauron in the Lord of the Rings was on him. That was not a loving gaze. And so often we, we picture God that way. Maybe your experience of church or pastors or leaders has not been a good experience. Maybe your father was abusive or absent or overly critical, and you could never think that a heavenly father can know you, can see you, and not be disappointed, and not be disgusted, and not turn away. But, oh, child, he sees you. And he knows you better than you know yourself. He sees the spirit that he has put in you. And he sees the way that you are still broken. And he loves you still deeply, madly, truly, fiercely. If you were to die today with no recollection, no recollection of birthplace or name or family of origin, we could still be absolutely certain about what to put on your tombstone. Beloved, he knows you and he loves you. And if you're here and you would like us to pray with you, to pray for you, we, we ask you to please reach out. If you'd like to start a new life, a following Jesus, the Jesus that we, we, we see here and we will continue to see here in the book of Exodus, if you want to follow him, we would love to begin that journey with you. The Bible promises that if we confess with our lips and believe in our hearts that Jesus is king, that Jesus is Lord, that the center of gravity is Jesus Christ, then we will be saved and called up into his wonderful mission. And if that's you, let us know because we would love to celebrate with you. I want to pray for you now. Father, we thank you again for your goodness to us. 
I pray specifically now for those, Lord, who are turning from darkness to light, who are turning from themselves to you. And I pray, Lord, that you would work powerfully and that you would help us to be the kind of church, Lord, that we would be uh, holy midwives, as it were, that we would be there for the new birth, that we would see people with fresh faith and fresh eyes of hope and love, people who maybe once were thinking of taking their own lives are now finding life in yours. And so I pray, Lord, that we would know that in our distress and in our pain, the God of Exodus, the God who is poised to rescue his people is still at work rescuing his people by the Spirit. And I pray for those, Lord, who are here with us, joining us even digitally, that would want to make this turn. Do your work, Holy Spirit. It's not ours, it's yours. We pray for all these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. One of the things that we do every week that we're not going to give up doing just because we are meeting digitally here is this practice called communion. Uh, if you were a part of a different Christian tradition, you may have called it the Eucharist or the Lord's table. But that's a point in, in our weekly rhythm together as we gather as God's people to take some bread or uh, a cracker uh, and to take some wine or some juice and break the bread in remembrance as a symbol, as an embodied act, as a remembrance of what Jesus has done for us, that his body, God in Christ, was crucified for us and his flesh was torn for our salvation. And we drink that wine or grape juice to remember uh, the blood of Jesus that was poured out for the remission of our sins, for the taking away of our sins, for the opening up the way to be who God has created you and me to be. And so as we transition into uh, singing into, into worship together. Uh, I'll give, we'll, we'll give you some time to, to just grab those elements now and to worship our good God together. We love you, bless you, and I'll see you next week.